I'm Sam. I'm David. And this is Trafe. Trafe. back in the old studio david mm-hmm. well i mean they fixed that loose screw on the mic so it's not hitting you in the face anymore thank you ckut overlords uh, but before before we actually dive into anything sam i've been noticing this thing where every time that we record an episode i'll go home and the next morning i'll be on the canadian jewish news website or jewish telegraphic agency and i'll see a story and be really frustrated that we didn't, that I hadn't seen it uh the night before to talk about it will you make some kind of a sound like a comic book sound like a harumph no, it's usually just like me having a furrowed brow. Okay. But anyway, I, I, can we just wait a sec? I just want to take a quick look before we record anything just to see if there's anything that we should be talking about here. Preparedness is key, David. Okay. So All right. Got, so you fired up the old computer. Yeah. Okay. Let's see what we got here. Anything on the Canadian Jewish news? Yeah. We got a multi-faith rally to call for increase in minimum wage. This is Hey-o. actually, I have to say, I'm genuinely shocked. So this interfaith rally is taking place on the 1st of October which means it probably took place in the past, if people are listening. Yeah, so Shalom Schachter and Rabbi Michael Satz of Holy Blossom Temple seem to be taking the lead on for the Jewish contingent, so uh, preemptive shkoyak to both those two. Yeah, definitely. Great. All right, well, thank you, Canadian Jewish News. You scratched that itch? Yeah. So uh, moving on for that brief tangent. Yeah, we talked about this a little bit earlier today, but our pals at Judas... And I'm using the word pal very lightly because we have maybe not communicated with them before, but they are organizing a Yom Kippur ball in in London. Uh, We're hopefully going to get them on the show soon. But if you're in London and listening and don't know Judas, check out Judas and go to that Yom Kippur ball. It's a really significant part of radical Jewish history in North America and Western Europe. So we, we have talked a bit about the history of these Yom Kippur balls. And if you want to learn more about that history, you should order the new 577 Year of Radical Dreaming calendar that you can get if you look into the show notes. The first month of the year has an illustration by C. Lavery describing the history of this, this anarchist Jewish phenomenon. There you go. Uh, well, we should probably dive into the show today. That sounds uh, A+. We're continuing on this maybe masochistic journey of investigating the radical right and thinking about how it relates to contemporary Jewish ideas and institutions. Yeah, if you if you listen back a couple episodes, you'll see we had a conversation with Spencer Sunshine talking about the way that far-right organizing can often spill over into leftist spaces if we're not careful. And, and on today's show, we thought we would talk a bit about this new phenomenon, this burgeoning movement that's calling itself the alt-right. We're actually calling this series of podcasts our radical right suite. Like S-W-E-E-T? No, the UI version. Like a suite of podcasts. All right, well, so we talked to two people, one of whom is kind of an activist and an organizer, Daniel Suretsky. He actually founded the website that publishes our work in addition to ours, jewschool.com. And we also spoke with Matthew Lyons, who's working on an upcoming book about fascism in the United States. Yeah, and, and Daniel focuses more on the Jewish relationship with the alt-right, whereas... Matthew has a has more of a macro take on the situation. And if you don't feel like listening to an entire podcast full of analysis about new right-wing movements, we're also going to have a lighter segment, uh, our regular segment called Square. So this is your first episode of Trafe for the year 5777. 
Devoted and astute listeners of the podcast might have noticed that we have added a slightly new segment into this portion of the show. Uh, You're a very careful listener. You're a fastidious listener, you might say. Thank you for those adjectives. Very careful listener. Again, I appreciate all your adjectives. It is most easily identifiable with the backing music that you are listening to as we speak. Written by the one and only Josh Dolgan, a.k.a. So-Called. We are using the space to either play voice memos that we've received from listeners and or promote things that we think should be promoted and or what else, David? Well, occasionally we'll we'll have little plugs for things going on as well. But if this is the first you're hearing of our request for voice memos, just to reiterate, if you have anything that you want the listeners of Trave Podcast to hear, if you want to send us dispatches of any interactions you've had with the institutional Jewish community and anything you'd like to send us at about 30 seconds to a minute, we'd love to play it here. Also, don't forget to give us a positive review on iTunes. <laughs> So with that being said, we received this voice memo on trafepodcast at gmail.com recently. Hello, Trafe Podcast. This is Aaron. And just because I'm not working at CKUT anymore doesn't mean I'm not still listening or still watching. So with that, more hockey and more punk rock. Bye. My name is Daniel Saratsky. I am the founder of Progressive Jews Pack, formerly known as Jews for Bernie. And before that, I was the founder and organizer of Occupy Judaism. And prior to that, the publisher of JewSchool.com. Which, for folks who listen to the show, is uh, the website that kind of puts out our podcast every week or two. So thank you for that. Mm-hmm. We invited you on the show to talk a little bit about Echoes, to talk about some of the anti-Semitism that's been happening uh, on the internet, particularly around the 2016 election in the United States. For folks who don't really have an idea of what we're talking about, could you give us kind of an intro or primer to Echoes and some of these efforts to combat it? Sure. So Echoes is a phenomenon that was created by internet Nazis to identify Jews, to out them by exposing them with these pair of triple parentheses around Jewish names so that Jews couldn't hide in plain sight. And they put out a Chrome extension called the Coincidence Detector, which is a tool that was linked to a database of Jewish names and would automatically wrap those Jewish names in the parentheses. The parentheses are called echoes because they are symbolic, purportedly, of the echoes throughout history of subversive Jewish influence over white culture. So they just have databases of Jewish names? Yeah, so they had compiled a database of Jewish names. It looks like it was done manually, or maybe they scraped some lists. On Wikipedia and other places, there's lists of Jewish writers and filmmakers and so on and so forth, but then sort of manually adding the names of larger targets. And that would probably include a lot of Jewish journalists, as well as many Jewish politicians of all different stripes, and non-Jews who are sympathetic to Jews. Now, you spend a bunch of time on the internet. I mean, we follow you and 
enjoy a lot of what you um, put out there. Could you also kind of contact, like this isn't happening by itself. It's happening within a broader kind of prominence of kind of internet Nazis on Twitter? <laughs> the thing about Twitter in particular as a platform is that it's been incredibly, you know, democratizing in terms of the access of the public to the media. Previously, it would be a letter to an editor or comments on an article, but you could never really interact directly with a journalist unless you called them at their office, which would likely get you in trouble if you didn't have a way of blocking your number. Now, you could just anonymously troll people online and accost them with your regressive beliefs, and that seems to have flown for a very long time on Twitter without any kind of meaningful response from their leadership. And because of that failure to actually bring accountability to folks on their platform, they feel rather emboldened in their activities. And that's why you find on Twitter this kind of preponderance of neo-Nazism and, and you know, uh, regressive ideologies. So if I'm an internet Nazi and I have this coincidence detector app and I, and I turn it on and I use it, it's just a way of connecting me to Jewish people online who I can harass? In some ways, yes, because whenever you see a Jewish name highlighted in parentheses, you know that person is Jewish, and if that's your thing, you're going to go bug them. But often it's been used without attaching names to it so much as identifying ideas as Jewish ideas. So they'll put things like elites and immigration, you know, all of these policies that they associate with Jewish influence wrapped in echoes as well. Um, what's the function been of this app being up? Like, have people just been getting attacked left and right? Uh, well, so the coincidence detector was taken offline almost as soon as it was revealed to exist by Mike.com. So Google, as soon as they found out about it, they took it offline and it was no longer available. All the browsers in which it was installed automatically uninstalled it. And I think only the folks who had the source code that could pass it around so that you could manually install it still had access to it. Um, part of my technological ignorance here, but you created an app to counter this app? What I did was I took their app, their exact code. And all I did was swap out their database of Jewish names for a database of white supremacists and replaced the parentheses with swastikas. So it's their own code. All I did was turn it back against them. Okay. And, and how I'm sure the response has been very, very kind and gentle. Right. So uh, I had my address posted photos of my family, oh, me geez. in a concentration camp, me in a gas chamber, me in a Nazi uniform, uh, you know, every kind of anti-Semitic meme, you know, ever created by the 4chan community was sent my way in the course of a week. All these other things, you know, just came my way. My wife wanted me to get a new security camera for the front door. I had to tell the UPS store where my mailbox is to keep an eye out for suspicious people lurking around. You know, fun stuff. Have any of these online would, threats materialized into real life uh, threats? No, no. And, I, you know, they never do. I think in some cases, some folks have a greater reason to be scared than I do. But when it comes to the alt-rightists, they rarely put their money where their mouths are. To look a little bit internally, I guess, how have you felt about the institutional Jewish response to this kind of stuff? Your ADLs, 
your Jewish media? Like, have do you feel like they have analyzed and interpreted what is going on accurately? Well, here's an interesting story. It's a funny one. So one of the things that happened as a response to the Nazi detector was that some Nazis created an account on Twitter called Dan Saratsky and started saying that I was a child molester, all of these horrific things that are libelous. And Twitter said that they couldn't determine any behavior to be going on with that account that was inappropriate or violated their terms of service and that they wouldn't take it down. So uh, I got in touch with the ADL. They contacted Twitter on my behalf. And after Twitter reviewed the account again and failed to act, read them the riot act, and they actually suspended the account. When it comes to the Jewish press, I don't really think that the Jewish press gets much of anything. And that includes internet anti-Semitism. I think for them, driving clicks is more important than say, investigative journalism or using the power of journalism to fight hate in a meaningful capacity. I think the days of that kind of Jewish journalism are over largely as a function of the bankruptcy of media financially and ethically these days because of its dependence on advertisers and the largesse of uh, powerful funders. So I don't see anything coming out of the Jewish media. On a slightly lighter note, the clickbaitiest article, I will not name the organization, but there was an article this week that was the five Jewish things you have to know about the Melania Trump speech. Listen, listen, I, I have a lot of pity for my friends at the forward. A lot of empathy, a lot of pity. But I, I, can't, uh, I can't stomach this stuff anymore. <laughs> and I guess one thing in what I've read in the forward and the JTA and certain articles, there's a way of kind of like isolating anti-Semitism in this kind of stuff sometimes. Do you think about this within the broader context of internet Nazis kind of targeting different groups of people and Jewish folks being one of those groups? Like, is there a way yeah, that... Yeah, I definitely think that the Jewish community has failed to take interest in the subject until Jonathan Weissman got attacked by internet Nazis, right? Like, nobody in the Jewish community outside of the more progressive Twitterati cared about this issue until it became a, a focus of a New York Times article. I mean, most of these folks aren't on Twitter to begin with, so they don't care, they don't know from it. But for the folks who are on Twitter and experiencing these things, the Jews definitely were not so interested in this subject. They, they were mum on Gamergate, you know? You never heard any engagement from them when women were being harassed and threatened with rape and all these other things. You didn't hear from them when black people's lives were being threatened by white supremacists for speaking up against police brutality. Right? None of that stuff was on the agenda. And still, when you listen to different Jewish groups talking about Trump's Nazis, you don't really hear them talking about people of color who are being targeted. You hear them talking about how you knew it was eventually they were going to come for us. But, you know, where were you the whole time before that? And so that makes me curious about the engagement by the Anti-Defamation League here, because I, from my vantage point uh, on the other side of the border, I definitely see them as an organization that has a similar track record of engaging very selectively with anti-Jewish sentiment, but tends to not have the greatest history of standing up for structural racism against other peoples and actually participates in fomenting hatred toward Palestinians, for example. I couldn't agree with you more. 
the irony of it, and this actually came up while I was talking to the ADL on the phone about this, is that I was actually running two Abe Foxman impersonation accounts on Twitter for like a year. And so they were like, oh, now you're calling us because you're being impersonated, huh? Uh, for listeners, <laughs> listeners unfamiliar, Abe Foxman was a longtime leader of the Anti-Defamation League until very recently. <laughs> and uh, someone in this phone call out of the three of us may or may not have been involved in a countdown meter on the internet that was counting down the days before Abe Foxman stopped being the leader of the ADL. That is true as well. I did run uh, when is com, <laughs> <laughs> which was a fun little project. Well, Daniel, do you mind if we uh, reach out to you in the future for Jewish internet questions? This has been very informative. Uh, not at all. Anytime you want. Thanks again for taking the time to chat with us. No problem. I'm going to go make my son a grilled cheese sandwich and go pick him up from school. Okay, great. <laughs> Have a great rest of your so. day. So after talking with Dan, we, we felt like there were still questions we had about what the alt-right is, where it's coming from, who its targets are, where it's going. And, and so we got in touch with Matthew Lyons, whose work specifically focuses on the far right in the United States. My name is Matthew Lyons, and I have been studying and writing about right-wing politics for probably over a quarter of a century with an emphasis on far-right politics in the United States, but also looking at developments in other countries. For a number of years, I have been contributing to a blog called Three-Way Fight, which is a leftist anti-fascist blog. And I've also written for a number of other publications and online sites. So we have you on to kind of give us an overview or describe to people who maybe have heard the term alt-right for the first time in the last couple months, and maybe to provide some context about the term and kind of who is being grouped under that umbrella, if you will. Sure. Um, well, alt-right is short for alternative right. And the term has been used in a number of different ways, and it's, it primarily starts in around 2008 or 2009 with a guy named Richard Spencer. Somebody who started out in what I would call the conservative right and moved further to the right from there. And he started using the term alternative right to describe a kind of politics that was dissatisfied with conventional conservatism. In 2010, he established a online journal called alternativeright.com. From the beginning, there was a strong emphasis on white nationalism, but it also included people who came from other perspectives. There were some writers who put more of an emphasis on uh, gender issues and kind of re-intensifying patriarchy. So there, there were a few different points of view. That magazine or, or journal was around for only a couple of years, but the term continued to be used by people of various persuasions. And then in the last couple of years, I'd say it's really kind of taken off and gained a lot more 
visibility and a lot more people have embraced it. The alt-right is primarily an online phenomenon, although there are some organizations that have, you know, kind of a physical presence. There, there are also conferences and, and have started to be rallies and protests as well. But it's mainly something that's, that's focused on online activism. It is predominantly white nationalist participants, for the most part, not only regard whites as the most important and best racial group, but also tend to advocate some kind of ethnostate, as they say. They say, you know, we don't necessarily need the whole country, but we want to have at least some kind of a portion of the country that would be reserved for, for white people. I mean, I mean, the politics that you're describing seem like they've been around for quite some time. I'm just wondering what makes the alt-right different. Like, are they are they different from, you know, historical white nationalist movements? Yes and no. I agree that the, the, the core ideas have been around for a long time in the United States and elsewhere. There are some things that, that set the alt-right apart. One, as I said, is the focus on online political activism. The alt-right has really taken that to a different level. Another thing is, with some exceptions, the, the people and groups who identify with the alt-right don't tend to have direct linkages with earlier white nationalist groups such as neo-Nazis and the, the Ku Klux Klan and groups like that. There are some exceptions. And then another thing that I think is important that sets the alt-right apart is the kind of political style or, or political tactics and, and political tone that they've adopted. It does vary. I mean, you have a, 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 a wing of the alt-right which presents itself as kind of intellectual and they specialize in articles that take a kind of scholarly tenor and, and this sort of thing. But what the movement has really become most known for is using a, a very mocking and aggressive form of online hate speech, really, where a website such as The Right Stuff has no hesitation to feature very extreme racist slurs, homophobic slurs, the kind of language that actually even neo-Nazis for many years were kind of backing away from. It's a very striking shift in, in my mind. I mean, for, for several decades, there was a kind of a trend on the far right in the U.S. where they would take very intensely supremacist ideas and package them in a way that they thought would be more palatable for a mass audience. What's striking about the alt-right is, to a large extent, they don't take that approach. They say, yeah, we believe in, in racism. Why not? They say, okay, you're going to call us fascists? That's fine. We'll embrace that label. It really reminds me in some ways of what you saw in the 1960s, where leftists started to repudiate anti-communism, which had, up until then, had many leftists kind of living in fear, where they would feel like they had to keep their politics under wraps. But then in the 1960s, people started to say, yeah, I'm a communist. What are you going to do about it? I, I see that same kind of shift happening with the alt-right. 
it's chilling. I mean, it's, it's scary. So on our show, the focus is principally on the Jewish media and, and different forms of online Jewish publications. And it seems like in the last few months, there's been a tremendous discussion about the alt-right. Do you feel like there's a reason why this is happening now? What do you think about the timing of all of this? Well, I think that the alt-right has become much more visible and much more active over the last year or couple of years. It's partly a backlash against progressive movements such as Black Lives Matter, immigrant rights movements. It's certainly very much tied in with the Donald Trump presidential campaign. And I think that has helped give them and their ideas and their messages a lot more visibility than, than it would have otherwise. So the Jewish press kind of focused on echoes. Is this like first coming out party for, for the alt-right to a certain extent? Could you situate it within the broader context of alt-right trolling and hate speech? There is disagreement within the alt-right about the Jewish question, as they say. There are some people and institutions within the alt-right, such as Richard Spencer and American Renaissance, that actually welcome Jewish participation. And then there are others that say, you know, no way, no how. Do we want to have anything to do with Jews? And then there's a kind of a middle group that says, well, yes, it's true that Jews have been a destructive force and, you know, we need to be careful, but there are certain ways that we can work with them and and maybe sort of have uh, some sort of an understanding. I mean, there are some alt-rightists who say, while Zionism is a dangerous force in the world, it's actually good that Jews have this homeland that they can all go to, and then they'll, you know, they won't bother us. And so we should come to an understanding with Israel. So that's that's a point of debate within the alt-right. That's so interesting. I mean, like, in, in that viewpoint, who is the ultimate enemy that Jewish people can be mobilized to target? In the alt-right viewpoint? Well, I mean, there are some alt-rightists who say, in Europe, for example, there's a basis for common ground with Jewish organizations in opposing the mass influx of Muslim immigrants, and that even if we have reasons to be mistrustful of Jews, we also, you know, there's, there's some room for tactical collaboration. Given that debate, what do you make of the media coverage of the alt-right that's positioning Jewish people as its primary target? Well, as a broad brush, that's a fair characterization that, taken as a whole, the alt-right is very clearly anti-Semitic and very clearly highlights Jews as a major threat. The other voices within the alt-right that I'm talking about, I I don't think they're the majority viewpoint. I do think that it's important to be aware that there is this, this range of viewpoints, partly because there may be instances where Jewish organizations find themselves being approached by some of these folks in, in certain ways. And it's good to know what's, you know, what's behind that. It's also true as a broad statement. I mean, the the alt-right is clearly anti-gay, anti-LGBT politics, and yet there are differences around that. And there have been 
efforts by significant sections of the alt-right to appeal to LGBT folks, saying, for example, you know, Islam is our common enemy. And because, you know, supposedly Islam is more homophobic than Christianity, I guess. So therefore, you know, we should we should join together. You know, that was one of their themes around the Florida mass killings, for example. Matthew, before we let you go, um, me and David have spoken a bunch on the show about how the anti-Semitism framework might might try and do too much, that there's a lot of different things that anti-Semitism tries to encompass, and that maybe by putting it all together, it does a disservice to the differences that are happening and doesn't maybe necessarily incorporate it into an analysis of white supremacy and settler colonialism in North America. And yes, so I guess this is a large question, but wondering if you have any reflections on the theme. Uh well, that is a big question. I'll, I'll see if I can uh, tackle at least a little bit of it. I mean, I certainly agree that anti-Semitism is not sufficient for understanding far-right politics or understanding how far-right politics are related to systems of oppression in North America. It's very important to put white supremacy, racial oppression, and the history of settler colonialism at a you know pretty central point in an analysis for that, along with certainly an understanding or analysis of capitalism, an understanding of patriarchy and, and, and other systems of oppression. You know, historically and today, there's a particular kind of scapegoating that is at least organically related to anti-Semitism in terms of the classic idea that Jews are this hidden, super powerful group. And so if you have a sense of disempowerment, if you have a sense that you are being excluded from how the country is being run or being economically oppressed, then you can blame it on the Jews or some symbolic stand-in. It's a matter of taking a conspiracist analysis in place of a systemic or structural analysis, focusing on bankers as a major force for oppression in a way that doesn't situate them within an overall system of capitalist economy, but treats them as some sort of sinister force that's disrupting the normal workings of the economy. Sometimes you see elements of that or versions of that presented as leftist and people you know, may get fooled. Something that we've been thinking about is it seems like there is this conspiracist analysis that I think both of us are used to seeing in right-wing populism that is occasionally rearing its head, not within maybe the radical left, but within a more general progressive leftist milieu. And it just, you know, it's it's been a very long time since there have been mass movements and the context for uh, a systemic analysis being offered to that milieu. And, and I wonder if those things are related. I think they are related. I mean, I think that there is a tremendous weakness on the left. And that is one of the reasons the far right has gotten a hearing. If we had a, a left that was stronger in offering a systemic critique of 
capitalism as a system, for example, there would be less room for conspiracist versions of anti-elitism. You know, certainly there are people out there putting out that kind of systemic analysis, but they've been marginalized to a large degree. And so many people who see themselves as progressive either don't come in direct contact with that point of view or dismiss it and may be then attracted to a conspiracist point of view, which seems more appealing. I mean, conspiracism and liberalism both take the approach that at root, the system that we have is basically okay or would be okay, except for these external forces that are distorting it. People feel disempowered, people feel excluded, people feel that the mainstream politicians are not listening to them. So some of them are attracted to people like Trump or people further to the right than Trump, because they feel that those folks are speaking to them. And just before I let you go, for the third time, is the best place for folks to find your work at the Three-Way Fight blog? The Three-Way Fight blog, and I also have a website that features other writings of mine, Matthew N. Lyons. Great. Thanks so much, Matthew. Hey, thank you. It's not the book of life. It's not the book of death. It's time for Shkoyach. Shkoyach! Shkoyach. Welcome one and all to the fantastic, stupendous, and zany segment known as Shkoyach. I couldn't have said it better myself, David. That was a reference to your relentless Twitter campaign of using the hashtag zany for things that had no relationship to the word zany. Me? You don't remember this? Zany? You were even putting it in our planning documents for this podcast. I don't remember that at all. This is like a year ago. I, I legitimately do not remember that. Anyway, hashtag Zany. Bring it back. <laughs> well, I greatly appreciate it. Um, so yeah, we're just we're just taking some time away from the more serious interviews to talk about some stories that we found entertaining this week. Because we have not given you, dear listeners, a shkoyach in quite some time. So Sam, what's your shkoyach for today? My shkoyach goes to the Jewish internet, the Jewish internet's ability to kind of incorporate a mainstream meme without killing it and also maintaining comedy levels. It sounds very specific. What are you you talking about? (laughs) I feel like a lot of the time, the Jewish internet jokes we get often fall into the like Jewish daily forward version of this is why this thing is Jewish, you know? I I guess I've yet to see any Jewish specific memes that I've really been that into. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to show you this one and... Let it be known that because of our differing levels of Jewish education, I actually only get two-thirds of the joke. Okay, okay. I'm looking forward <laughs> so, to this. I think you're going to also have to explain it to me as well, I to mean, a certain it, extent. It's very likely that I'll also not know the, the third key in this, uh, in this puzzle. <laughs> okay, because uh, you're... There's s- no keys in puzzles. Apologies to all our listeners. Yes. All right, Mr. Zinnerman, I am going to put my hand on the computer box and show you this meme. <laughs> 
This is, I've actually seen this. I've seen this before. This okay. Is, but what, what don't you understand? I mean, I guess we should tell people what this is. Yeah, could you describe it? The three f- images, dear listener, on this screen right now. Three images and three pieces of text under each image. Hebrew. Uh, I understand the outside images and their words. Okay. I'm not 100% sure on the middle image. Okay, so on the left, there is an image of a famous Jewish thinker, and underneath it, it says his name, which is Harambam. Then next to him, another image of a famous Jewish thinker, and underneath him, his name, Haramban. And then on the right of him, there is a picture of an ape, and underneath it, it says Harambe. <laughs> Harambe, right. for those who are not familiar, was the a gorilla. Yeah, he definitely a gorilla was a gorilla. That was Rest in uh, power. unfortunately killed by a zoo, I think, in the United States. Cincinnati, after, Cincinnati Ohio, David. Yeah, after a child unfortunately fell into the area where the apes were forced and confined to be. It was unclear if he was going to hurt him or not, and then he ended up dragging him, and then yeah. The Cincinnati Zoo ended up shooting him. The thing that's important here is that... That Harambe has become the most important figures on the internet in North America over the course of the summer. Yeah, it, it was a several-layered meme where the first layer was that people were really upset that they killed this gorilla rightfully. And then there was a second layer of the meme where it was a critique of the white liberal outrage of a gorilla being killed while being silent on mass injustices against black people and other peoples in America at the moment. And then there was a third level, which was kind of bringing it into this like weird, absurdist nihilist zone. And then it just got to this point where it was so saturated into the culture. Yeah, it's post-meme. To the point where we're seeing <laughs> this Jewish meme. <laughs> so David, can you give me the hot take on who this middle fellow is? Oh, uh, Ramban is a Spanish Jewish thinker from the 12th century, I think, who uh, he's, he's often called Nachmanides, okay. where Ramban was called Maimonides. But Maimonides is a fairly important Jewish thinker. Oh, yeah. Principles of faith. And and so this, this Nachmanides fellow? Ramban. He, what did he do exactly? Yeah, like he wrote a lot about Jewish law. He, I, I think he was a doctor beforehand. I'm sure his parents were proud. <laughs> so there you have it. Sam's first goyach for five, seven, seven, seven. What uh, have you brought to the table? Okay, so to tell you my goyach for this week, Sam, I have to set a scene for you. Please do. The scene is... Closing my eyes. A few weeks ago, Wednesday, September 14th. Oh, topical goyach. We're, we're in the Brooklyn Supreme Court. Of course. Uh, and we're, we're in, in fact, a pretrial hearing. The and, Brooklyn Supreme Court is actually a very nice building. Uh, have you been there? Not inside, outside. Oh, outside. So we're inside. And a religious Jewish man, uh, or at least someone who looks like a religious Jewish man. How does he look like that? David? He has a beard. He's wearing a hat. Okay. Anyway, he's, he's walking in for his hearing okay. to put either a guilty or not guilty plea. Mm-hmm. But he arrives in a very particular set of attire. What kind of attire? Uh, so the hat that I mentioned... You're probably expecting it to be a black hat. Sure. But in fact, it was a hat made out of paper, and the paper was printed out of a computer with a list of the Ten Commandments on each side. (laughs) And in place of the usual suit jacket, Mm -hmm. he was wearing a jacket made of what seemed to be torn out pieces of paper from an English-Hebrew edition of the Humash. What? (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty hard. So our protagonist prints out a bunch of paper. 
and goes to the Brooklyn Supreme Court. Yeah, so and why might he be there, David? Okay, so is this guy named Aaron Acabri. He's three years old, and you might be asking yourself, why is he showing up to court in this very particular sure, set of sure. attire? I think it's a reasonable question. Yep. And it's because during a hearing before this, he insisted on reading at length from Judaic texts until the judge banned him from doing it. Okay, so he just wanted to make sure he had them all. So his, 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 his way of he, so, uh, so protesting. So he had them on hand. Yeah, he's protesting that ruling. Okay. And first of all, I'm giving him my shkoyach because this brightened my day. Okay. Um, Not and, because you co-sign his behavior. Oh, no, this is totally wacky, and it gets even worse. But um, this isn't his first time. Is uh, it his first time at the rodeo? Yeah, this isn't his first uh, rodeo uh, <laughs> of uh, resorting to bizarre means to protest nonsensical standards. All right, do tell. He was actually on The Daily Show in 2006. What? Yeah, he was a college stoner who they interviewed because he was on a hunger strike because he said that the meal plan wasn't catering to his dietary restrictions. Which were? Uh, well, he said that he had converted from Judaism to Rastafarianism. Happens. Uh, there was no evidence of this. And, and so when he was asked if it was because he didn't have Vital food for him, he said no, it was because they closed at 2 a.m. and he couldn't possibly regimen his eating to such an arbitrary time frame. Wow. It turned out he just wanted to get out of the meal plan. Oh, uh, that's um, dark. That was the entire Daily Show segment. But since The Daily Show, he's also been engaged in some shadier activity. Please tell. Uh, two years ago, he stored a bunch of guns in a locker of a Jewish youth center in Crown Heights. Oh, that's not very good. I mean, the cops found it. And then six months later, the cops raided his house. They found a lot of drugs, a credit card skimmer. Long story short, he's facing 17 charges for all this, and that's why he's in court. He's definitely defending himself, eh? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't look into that, but I'm, I'm 100% certain I bet that you're my right. bottom dollar he's defending himself. So, obviously, I do not co sign any of his behavior, but this picture in the newspaper and the backstory behind it just really brightened my day. So, All my right. shkoya goes to this guy, Aaron Akabri. And both of these images will be on trafepodcast.com. Wait, what's the second image? The Harambe one. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that time of show again yes that's the end of this episode talking about the alt-right we are working on another installment of the show that might take a bit longer uh talking a bit more about uh, the adl yeah the the jewish defense league and and as a way of talking in more detail about the complicated realities of jewish complicity in white supremacy we're actually speaking to quite a few different people about that subject so if you or anyone you know you think has a lot to say about that organization and its history please feel free to email trafepodcast at gmail.com we'd love to hear from you we also have a bunch of really great interviews lined up that we are excited to be putting out onto the World Wide Web. Thanks again for listening. I think it's good, David, every now and then to just thank people for listening. Yeah, thanks. And yeah, we'll have some new episodes in the next week or two. Trafe Podcast is Sam Bick. And David Zinman. Uh, we recorded this episode at CKOT under the giant cross of secularism on occupied Kanakahaga territory. Thank you for music help from Nick and Josh. Thanks as always to Kira Page for her amazing help with our social media presence. Thank you to Claire Hertig, our Minister of Design. Thank you to Cadence O'Neill for designing our new website, tradepodcast.com. And thank you to C. Lavery for the fantastic new poster design that you'll see around both Montreal and Toronto. As always, you can follow us on the social medias, Traif, T-R-E-Y-F. And that about does it, David. That's it? That's all. I don't want to go.
definitely not putting this in the podcast. Where did you get your squash racket, though? Someone gave it to me. Do you play rackets? Have you played racket sports in the recent past? Not recent past, but like a long time ago. You played tennis? The public camp that was free where I grew up was sports camp, so I went to sports camp, but I chose wow, all those. I would have liked to see you at sports so camp. So it was like, you get to choose you the did, sports. Like, archery? Yeah. <laughs> I chose archery. I chose tennis. All the sports that weren't really sports. But tennis, no, no, ten, all those racket sports are hard. Like, well, those are real sports. Tennis with a bunch of 10-year-olds is not exactly the most challenging guess, thing in the I world. I guess, I guess. The only time someone got hurt when I was playing sports was because my gym teacher made us play dodgeball with a basketball. It hurts a lot more. Uh, broke someone's fingers. Holy, sh- wow. Why did you not swear? <laughs> I don't want to have to bleep it. <laughs> it's like a pain in the butt. <laughs> I did it gosh, gosh darn it. Gosh darn it.